Living easy, living free. Season ticket on a one-way ride. Asking nothing, leave me be. Taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme. There ain't nothing I'd rather do. Going down, party time. My friends are gonna be there too. Come on a highway to hell. Highway to hell. I'm on a highway to hell. What the fuck? All right, did it stop? No stop signs. Speed limit. Nobody gonna throw me down. I go, we all gonna spin it. Nobody's gonna rest me around. So he has an interesting question. I know the metaverse isn't happening, but that's what they're pushing us to imagine as our future, which is what really matters because that's what's actually structuring our decisions now is what we're imagining we're trying to push for. And this is what they're trying to imagine for us. This is their idea of what our future should be. And if we accept it, we will make it a reality, not the thing itself, but a deformed gnarled, pathetic, halfway version, which is what makes the metaverse as sketched out so depressing. It's already sucky. It already sucks shit. You're like, this is just Second Life. This is Second Life plus early 90s VR technology that people thought was lame by the second Clinton administration. And that's what we get to. Uh, that's what we get to live with. Oi. That's not even what we get to live with. That's not what we get to actually experience. I should say that's what we get to live in the aspiration of. Live in the in the pathetic uh, contrails of. Live in the dust of. We get to live in the dust of this crappy future where we don't even get that level of lame interaction with a stupid fake universe. I mean, my God. 
Ready Player One is supposed to be sort of a dystopia, and it looks so much better than the fucking Zuckerberg verse. And you get to do things other than go to fucking work meetings. So, anyway, not great. That that's the the carrot that they're going to be dangling in front of our face as they trudge us into the uh, into the the hog shoots. But hey, it's not the only thing going. It's just what what they're right now trying to pitch as a way to make people think that there's some future for Facebook beyond being an angry grandpa meme aggregator, which has a very limited market uh, future. Because it doesn't matter that it's incredibly profitable now. What matters for the future of the company and its stock is that it has this imagined future uh, business because those old people are going to die. How are you going to appeal to the younger people if you are associated toxically with oldness. Sure, you know, there are older people coming up, but maybe they're alienated from the entire uh, concept of Facebook. They're not going to adopt it late. They're going to keep the things that they have. So they have to have some sort of thing that isn't old people uh, yelling at people. Old people yelling at their grandkids for not liking their posts or whatever. Now, they do own Instagram, so that's their youth play, but Facebook is the big enchilada, and it's got to show a future uh, market value. Yeah, right. Like the old people, the young old, young people when they get old, they're gonna keep doing Discord or whatever the fuck. They're not gonna switch to Facebook once they get a certain age. But yeah, their only real hope is to buy the sector, buy the uh, competition, monopolize the thing to set prices. That's it. That's all they can do. That's all any of them can play for. The monopoly play is the only play left. Because we've reached a terminal point of capital uh, accumulation, where it's no longer accumulating, at least not at the rate that commensurate with the need for growth in the system. And you know what? That's a good play. Like, if they get us to a point where we're mandatorily having to buy neck braces that explode if we don't look at Facebook enough, then it doesn't matter that they never built the multiverse. That it was all a fucking chimera. Because they will have uh, what they need, which is the ability to uh, squeeze profit uh, endlessly out of the system until, of course, the thing collapses. And all we'll have then are the remnants of technological hierarchy left over from the destruction of the main circulatory system. What, like Once capital stops circulating through the system, which is when we're, what we mean when we really talk about collapse, it's when the circulation of capital trade networks break down. Uh, and then you're not going to just have people fleeing into anarchy or uh, you know, doing a revolution. You're going to see regional concentrations of po- capital uh, around uh, certain technological structures that support them asserting dominance. 
And so things like Facebook are going to be features of those new regimes of power because they're necessary social architecture at this point. Like Facebook is doing a, a job. It is fulfilling a role in the market that is now, thanks to the change of our living conditions, the atomization of life, the reconstitution of life online, is as vital as electricity, sewage, and any other public utility. Certainly the fucking telephone. It is now a thing people need the way that people need those things in order to have a functioning society at this level of complexity and population. Sophistication is the word. So it's got to exist. But it can't exist as a profit-making enterprise because it will deform itself. Like, we have to all talk to each other online. Uh, We have to have conduits for information and and, and relationships that Facebook provides. But we do not need our participation in it mangled by an algorithm that is determined by a ad revenue model. If the thing is just administered neutrally, now, of course, oh, there's no neutral administration in politics. Yes, of course, and it would become a political co- argument, but it would be an actual political argument. Like, what's so frustrating about people arguing about Facebook and about big tech censorship is that you're talking about something that is outside of government regulatory structures at this point because we're not treating it like a utility. Like if it was an actual utility, at least the argument over what should go on there would have some sort of democratic uh, uh, input and deliberation behind it. It would not be dictated by profit. It's not perfect, but it's better. And I mean, obviously, all that really does is put a a a layer of uh, Separation between uh, Facebook and you know government that really just increases the latency of a transaction that is dominant. Like, oh, we're going to vote on it and make it public. Like that isn't then going to be what what we do with a public utility isn't going to be dictated by private interests in the system that is not a democracy. But at least it would start as a wedge. And it would be something that could maybe enliven the actual political system, which is dying because of a lack of any meaningful uh, avenue of economic, or I'm sorry, of uh, democratic accountability. Like everyone knows now that nothing is determined, nothing that matters is determined uh, democratically, which is why all the most important most passionately felt uh, political beliefs people have are about culture. But of course... A lot of it is putting carts before horses because it's difficult to imagine any real public democratic accountability for the new Leviathan tech sector short of a genuine revolution. 
you know, and that is the dirty little secret of online political disputation, is that even if people who are here to talk about politics and try to cut through sort of the noise of the spectacle of politics and try to get to what really matters, have to dance around the fact that we've reached a crisis point in the American democratic system relative to our real ecological barriers that are not being priced into our political deliberations now due to a complete breakdown of democracy, a, a, the transubstantiation of democracy uh, into a, a technocracy, the Skynet becoming self-aware, uh, means that conventional politics, up to including basically all electoral politics, can have really nothing but an entertainment function. And that, like, if you wanted to determine what political act you take based on your real faith belief that it could do any good, would have to be extra extra electoral in a way that doesn't lend itself to public discussion. Let me just say that. So how do you talk about things while talking around the unspoken fact that everyone knows but no one can say, that we are past the point when effective political action, as in things you think in your heart of hearts, things you believe, things you believe are going to make things better, uh, can be anything other than resistance. But the reason that people don't make that claim and make that jump in their personal life is for the very good reason that even the most extreme uh, visions of resistance to the state that one could imagine would be at best sort of uh, uh, glorious like self-annihilation. That, that, that there is no real capacity of... Uh, organization in the current moment to allow for effective resistance to whatever we want to think of as the state. The next best thing we have is local power in terms of supporting uh, union organizing, supporting strikes when they happen, uh, and uh, participating in local politics as a way to base build towards creating a broad coalition of working class interests as resistance at the workplace level accelerates, which I think it will. But the thing about that is it's not funny, entertaining, and more importantly, relevant to everybody that you might be trying to communicate to. Because these are local questions most of the time. And, na- and people trying to interact with a local struggle are not going to be able to commiserate on any of the relevant questions because they don't have, they're not in the room and they don't have skin in the game. And they, and they are observing from a position of disengagement from the material questions. Like, as in, the stuff that's going to either make my life better or worse. Like only in the most abstract sense, because you're not there. What that means is that if you want to get in there, and of course everyone wants to fucking get in there, everyone wants to help, you find yourself applying 
questions, applying heuristics to the situation that are irrelevant. And that are going to most likely be made up of pre-occupations defined by participation in and spectation of the national political uh, uh, debate sphere, which because nobody can talk about effective action because they can't do it, because it's either too dangerous or it's not uh, uh, it's not relevant to a, a, a audience that isn't strictly regional. And nobody has that anymore. Uh, all they can talk about is bullshit. All we can talk about is bullshit. You can either be having fun with it or you can be trying to argue it in earnest. But either way, you're responding to the the puppet show. I mean, I know that's always seemed like the most trite observation about democracy is, oh, it's all just a sham. But like the reason that that is not enough to say is because a, the degree of shamness matters and has practical considerations and impacts strategy. So saying, oh, it's all a sham, it's all a spectacle, isn't enough. Because there are degrees. Like the, we had a, we had more democratic control of our of our uh, we had more formal democratic control over the decisions of the system that we are building in the sixties than we do now. Now, of course, the electorate was much smaller and it was racially segregated, which is in large part why we could allow that level of democratic participation because it was screened away from the people who would most need to, or be most inclined to get together to redistribute things. Now, those structures of democracy have imploded as the uh, electorate has increased, and that's been the way that American democracy has worked since the founding. As the system gets more complicated, as, as our economy gets more complicated, as more technology is introduced into our structures, the formal amount of democracy in our system goes away because there's too many decisions to make. There's too many decisions that are too important that have to be made too quickly to allow for real democratic participation in, all, in the way that you could have it in a previous generation when there were fewer decisions to make. And the pressure that this complexity puts on the system from below leads to the enlarging of the franchise and the increase of the number of people who are allowed to exercise uh, electoral participation as a way of venting their uh, alienation from the system. Now, this is a process. This happens over time. And so we're at a point now where, after having created a full formal electorate for the first time in America in the last 30 years. We've also created a uh, post-70s technocracy, a, 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 uh, a political economy dictated by fully institutions that are undemocratic and, and in fact, anti-democratic, like from the uh, World Bank and IMF to, most crucially, the Federal Reserve, and then, of course, the military, uh, and the intelligence community.
What that means is, is that my opinion on what happens in a democracy this hollowed out means nothing. It might have meant something in a previous generation. Because my vote had a mean, more meaningful impact on structures of power. If I could vote, if I was inside the bubble. Well, now more of us are inside that bubble of voting. But the, all that passion we have is all going towards making a decision that will have no meaningful impact on the system. That is, a, that is not political action. That is not being a political subject. That is pretending to be a political subject. And that's what we're all doing. We're pretending to be political subjects. And our participation in uh, political media is part of that building of imagined political subjectivity. Now, real political action at this level is now effective action is going to be organizing in a way that is not spectacular the way electoral politics are. And because of all this, we're now sliding towards the creation of the end state of capitalism, where it is fully detached from all human will, where our ruling class, the people in charge, are effectively all along for the ride and are all incapable of acting in a way counter towards uh, a runaway, unmoored uh, profit accumulation algorithm. And what that will create is a situation where there is no more human ownership of anything, like in a meaningful sense. Even our rulers will not really own anything. It will be owned by the algorithm, which will distribute according to that algorithm. Now, there's going to be people making a lot of money and sitting in houses that they own, but it's essentially going to be an NFT situation. They're, uh, they're allowed to sit there because someone's got to sit there. They're allowed to have access to that money because the, the profit has to go somewhere because the machine itself doesn't want it. It only does it because it, that's what it's there to do. It is inhuman, and, and profit is a human, uh, it has subjective human value. And that is not captured, priced into the uh, algorithm. So it's got to go somewhere. And it goes towards those people who, uh, by happenstance, are sitting uh, right by the spout. And everybody else will have their uh, ownership of anything eventually uh, denuded away. So that everyone is renting their uh, space on Earth, basically. Now, of course, this is just the reverse. This is the this is the uh, 
outcome of the, this is what happens when the human race fails to cohere and organize itself against this uh, process, which is what the uh, socialist movement has been. Uh, what, what Marx identified at the beginning of, of the birth of modern capitalism was is that this machine would alienate us all from our humanity completely so that we literally own no material things, including our bodies, and that we would all, can, we would all make this happen without wanting it to happen while wanting some other thing we would be making this thing without knowing it. Everyone would be fighting for what they considered their own human self-interest, but what they were really serving the whole time was a system that is inhuman. And the only thing that could stop that is if people organized as humans, as a human species, as members of a species, and not as individuals. Reforge a collective identity that, that pervaded in humanity before the intervention of modernity. But with now the uh, advanced technology accumulated by capitalism to use to express the species will of the humanity and uh, distribute resources accordingly. That's what, that's what Marx identified as the task of the working class, as the leading edge of all humanity, because the working class would uh, experience conditions of life that would alienate them from capitalism in a specific way that other class members, bourgeois landowners, would not, because they're dispossessed first and most uh, essentially. And then, for, and then they are all forced to live together in close conditions and experience the reality of that and the reality of capitalism's role, it would essentially demystify them. And then they would organize and they would use their superior organizational skill and number as, 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 the, as capitalism makes more and more proletarians and dispossesses more and more people until the point that their numbers present, uh, their numbers uh, overcome the technological advantage of capital. That is the teleology of Marxism when it's spoken of. And the reason that that is not wrong, and the fact that we haven't had that happen, doesn't disprove Marx, is because Marx was merely saying that we have that ability. That that is the route of human salvation. That if humanity defeats capitalism, that's how it will happen. Doesn't mean it will, but it means that's how. Now, I think Marx thought it would, and on closer terms than many of us, because he was creating a replacement for religion. He was replacing religion, but not with an ideology, with a vision of humanity that was a transformative one, that was Christian, that was the best expression of all religious traditions. In the Reformation, what a lot of the Protestant common people were trying to build was heaven on earth through the recreation of the conditions of the early church, which were the holding of things in common. And that attempt was squashed by the earthly authorities, who only allowed the Reformation to the degree that it helped their power.
And the old holy warriors who fought for a a uh, fantasy, a, a, a creation of a ruling elite, which was what Christianity was, that feeling of, of, of righteous combat and righteous sacrifice on behalf of a cause can now be felt by people who can correctly see what the battle is, correctly see who the sides are and what the stakes are in a way that people in previous orders where uh, the hegemonic uh, superstructures, the cultural realities imposed by the ruling class were absolute. And that was the condition of the pre-modern uh, oppressed class, of the serf, the slave. They could not live in a way that allowed them to effectively create a counter-hegemonic understanding of the world. They had to live in the world imposed upon them by the church and by the, the king and, 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 or the emperor or whatever. And that ratified their subject position. And so you see, like, the Gnostics and the Anabaptists and the Cathars and the fucking Hutterites and all trying to build collective life. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the great peasants, German peasants revolt happens just a few years after the nailing of the theses in the Wittenberg Cathedral. There was a, a drive to make uh, Christianity the social, uh, the, the expressed social reality, to have it match have the social reality of living in Christianity match the vision of universal brotherhood. Now, of course, it was cramped and wrong because you could feel the alienation for the system and fight against it, but only using the vocabulary of your rulers. The creation of capitalism, the creation of this ever-increasing pool of proletarianized people who live are forced to live together and s struggle in the same conditions, creates not just disillusionment with the system and the feeling of oppression, but also solidarity. And Marx was saying, every previous resistance to capital uh, to a regime of power ends in collapse or domination of one by the other because they're all fighting with the cultural tools in the sandbox. They were in hermetically sealed hegemonies. So they could only recreate regimes of uh, control because that's all they knew. Capitalism creates a antithesis, a fundamental antithesis, as in a whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. With a different religious understanding where, relig where religiosity and sociality are fused and used and technology, the technology of mass media, and uh, consolidation of labor power into machines allows you to actually express it. The reason that those, uh, those, uh, those efforts to create a just Christendom failed is because the tools to distribute uh, resources equitably didn't exist. There was not sufficient concentrated capital around means of production to do that. When the Anabaptists took Munster... They basically just hung around and waited for the world to end because none of them could under none of them had any ability to create a functioning economy, and so they ended up just waiting for the world to end. And, and then it did when the emperor came and killed all of them because that was the one red line in the Reformation. 
Reformation threw a, most of the, the, the deeply held notions of the Western Catholic Church into question. The one that couldn't be questioned was infant baptism, even though one of the chief objections of Protestantism was that the, the Catholic Church did a bunch of shit that wasn't in the Bible. They made a bunch of shit up and that that was wrong because the Bible is the only true authority. You, everything else is fallen and, and deformed by man. But infant baptism isn't in the fucking Bible. But what infant baptism was, was not a baptism into a religion. It was a baptism into a social world, a hierarchy. And to say, I get to be baptized as an adult, I get to choose to enter this community, is to challenge the entire social order. But it couldn't work because there wasn't sufficient social technology or uh, economic technology around to redistribute labor effectively. We are at that point. We are past the point where capitalism has created the means to allow a socially coherent working class, uh, socially coherent working class with its own internal machines, technologies of belief, adhering people to a project at the center of the technological nexus, at, at the nodes of power, able to turn the knobs. You could do it. We could do it. It would essentially be humans taking over the machine from the algorithm. And then building a, a world where nothing is privately owned, but nothing is rented either. Like, provision for life is taken for granted. And your participation in the world with others, the building, the making of an economy, the, the, the distribution of resources, the building of a culture, the managing of those things is not participating in a market out of self-interest, out of homo economicus desire to maximize profit for myself and to hoard surplus to enjoy materially but is, is, is a spiritual communion with a social organism. And that sounds crazy, wacky, crazy, insane, but it, I swear to God it isn't. The thing that makes it seem insane is the idea that we are all, that we all have as a, a lodestone around our neck is uh, human nature, which is just the secularized version of original sin. It is capitalism, it is secular capitalism's recapitulation at the social level of belief in capitalism. Just as original sin was the functioning structure, is the, fun, is the uh, defining mental structure that adhered one to the society of orders in the Christian West. I am fallen. I have sinned, therefore, I must accept my lot. It's essentially a, a westernized version of the caste idea. Your position in life is determined by your worthiness. But all our 
all are fallen. But what, of course, is making you fall is living under these conditions, the reproduced social exploitation of a class society, where bad is called good, where you literally live in a matrix of ideology that turns virtue into vice and vice versa. Now, we killed God. We can't tell you that you are where you are because God wants you to be there. Because nobody, nobody really believes in God anymore. Well, what they do believe in is that they're human beings and that they're in a, a natural order. Well, part of that natural order is the idea that humans are wired to self-seek at the expense of, uh, of other people. And that's why we can't do what I talked about. You can't create uh, socialized structures of, of economic power because they'll just be hoarded by the mob and selfishly used by, uh, by elites who then use their position to exploit everybody else. Yeah, if we did that, yes, that's what would happen. But we wouldn't do that. The people doing that machine, the people operating that social ma machinery are not us. They have been transformed over time and struggle. Because you don't get that immediately. That's the result of a fucking long human organizational task. The best example of this would be the Cuban Revolution. The reason that Cuba, one of the reasons that Cuba has survived in the form it has without becoming a cult of personality terror state like North Korea, sorry haters, but that's what it is, was by building faith in the system. And that means not just people who are subject to the system, but the people who administer the system. That doesn't mean there's no corruption in Cuba. It doesn't mean it's perfect. What it means is the corruption and the exploitation are not so vast as to alienate the population at a mass scale in a way that can't be managed with the escape valve of emigration. Of course, the conditions of that exploitation and that corruption are economic deprivation. If you have a, if you have post-scarcity, plus, if you have a post-scarcity uh, context, and you have sufficient technology to distribute uncomfortable labor away from uh, the human experience, and people actually have values that are outside of the guilt matrix of living in capitalism, feeling either guilt or resentment at all times and having to do something with that resentment or guilt, that combination that everybody is filled with at all times under capitalism, that everybody is filled with, I should say, at all times under class or rule. There's a, a class system is bifurcated. And that means everybody is, is guilty of exploitation or is a victim of exploitation. But of course, because this is a very complicated social organism, this is gradient. This is not just a, it, it, at some point there's an inflection, but there is a gradient and there's a middle category of people who are both. And everybody feels guilt and resentment in some marbling. The more popular, the more powerful you are, the more it's just plain guilt. And of course, some of the richest people in the world are incredibly resentful. But of course, that is resenting people for making them feel guilt. 
And of course, at the very bottom, what do you have to feel guilty about other than the personal guilt of uh, committing harm to people around you, which happens a lot more when you're fucking miserable all the time. It is a parasitic relationship, and it's no good for either side. It is bad for your soul. And so your interaction with the world becomes selfish and dedicated to ignoring that feeling. And the only uh, thing to ignore it with is, is that which can be purchased in the market, either in the form of direct consumption or social standing elevation, which you get to feel good about, and the, the pursuit of social standing. Now, out of this, this, this sandwich of pain and resentment is forged the socialist movement. But it has to struggle in the context of capitalism as part of a caste society. When, when communism finally happens in the Soviet Union, it is not in the context of world revolution. And the seizure of the means of production at the center that, that Lenin and Trotsky imagined, but in the isolation of a economically backward, feudal world that then had to confront and compete with capitalism on its terms from a position of, of deep deficits. And it did the job, as people have said, miracle. But, what it, but it did kill millions of people to make it happen. You cannot deny that. And the reality of that is that it, it makes the project less believable to people who live through that and the kids, the people that they give birth to and raise. It disillusion, it, the, the necessary social belief that powers cop, communism is undermined. And no one in the social Bolshevik party at the top would have supported the October Revolution if they had thought they'd had to go it alone. I would challenge anybody who disagrees with that. They would not have done it if they thought they had to go it alone. Because they knew, they all knew what, would have, what that would require. It would require war on the peasantry. Because turning an agricultural population into an urban one is a violent, horrifying process that capitalism had, had, had uh, carried out in the rest of the world, either through enclosure and uh, violence, uh, labor violence at the center, or through... Uh, colonization from uh, outside. This is the first time that communism is asked to do this violent work. And yes, it does it, and it beats the Nazis. But by the 50s, they're left with the task of trying to compete with the West to create a consumer economy after they have lost the faith of the people. They say, look, we're just a state like other states. We're, we're an elite. But we can give you a better standard of living than you can get in the West. We can give you more stuff. And the thing is, the stuff that they could give them that we couldn't give our people, like guaranteed health care, guaranteed uh, housing and employment, 
in a in a position of social alienation in a in a in a in a context of social alienation that's not what people need that's not what people notice missing because in the west where capitalism has uh where where the hegemonic processes of capitalism have recreated our social order and our understanding of our place in society we don't feel entitled to those things we feel like those are rewards too what the what the uh, state is in charge of is all the pleasures. What the state is in charge of is whether or not we can uh, access consumer convenience, because that is our only acceptable form of relief from the anguish of capitalism. We can do drugs. Some of those are legal, and that you can contribute to the economy by buying them. Others aren't, and you can contribute by, to the intelligence community by buying those. But mostly, you have to buy things. And the government's job is to allow you to buy as much stuff as possible and give you the opportunity to contribute, or to the opportunity to compete in a market, not only for stuff, but for status. And uh, and with that question, with that as the as the modus operandi of our society, hey, we're gonna have you guys build a. We're all gonna have you guys work in factories, and then we're gonna give you stuff. But in the in the east, you're going to believe that you are a, a, a public. You you are working for the state, and then the state gives you some shitty fucking uh, appliances, uh, and and they have deep scarcity because they have a much smaller reservoir of uh, raw materials and a less, less developed uh, industry than the East does. And half of it got blown up by World War II. They had to start from scratch practically in a lot of the country. The United States' uh, industrial heartland was untouched and, in fact, massively expanded by the war. But in the West... You work. You work hard for yourself. Yes, you have a boss, but you are earning money. You're not working for the state. And then you can take that money and buy things. And you can buy more things than your neighbor. And if you work harder, you can buy even more things. You're not going to win that contest. You can't. That is why somebody said, and I forgot to even mention it because I got sidetracked, but at the beginning of the of the very beginning of the chat, somebody asked, "Of all of my pet counterfactuals, which one would you like to be able to read, like the magic transdimensional Wikipedia uh, article about? Like, which of these futures, if you could pick one, would you like to get onto a, a magic laptop and read the history of uh, in a world where it happened?" And I got to say, at this point, what if the Soviet Union had never existed? And the thing about this one is that it is the closest call of any of the big ones. The thing about Reconstruction, uh, the, the German uh, working class uniting against capitalism in 1918, these things are, when you really look at them, very overdetermined. But the Bolshevik Revolution is such a close-run thing. It is so... Uh, so contingent. 
if you look at it, uh, if you look at the situation in uh, Petrograd after the February Revolution and the the absolute terror and paralysis at the top of the Bolshevik Party, it is impossible for me to imagine them carrying off the October Revolution without Lenin showing up. And that is a contingent event. Or anything happens to Lenin between his arrival at the Finland station in October. I think they break up because none of them had the full confidence that they would win and the confidence to imagine themselves in a position of power afterwards. And for good reason. They were mostly a bunch of fucking fuck-ups. They were all, there was a com- it was a bunch of people who had been sitting in coffee shops their entire lives arguing about posts. And they were being asked to take over a government. Lenin was able to do it because of the vastness of his intellect and his full confidence in himself, which was mostly completely warranted. But one of the key things firing him towards October was a steely belief that they were going to kick off a world revolution, something that Trotsky had convinced him of. Because a guy of Lenin's capacity cannot be told your time in history has not arrived yet. You have to sit back. It's absurd. He has to think of a way to imagine that he can, even though there is no developed socialism in Russia at this point. There is no working class. The country is 90% peasant. But you have to imagine a world where you can take power and effectively wield it towards building world socialism. And looking at Russia, that's hard to imagine unless you also imagine a world revolution. And I am not saying that we that would be better. I just think it would be dramatically different and very, very easy to imagine. Now, I do think that if, there, if the Bolsheviks don't seize power in October, I do believe that there is a military coup. Uh, I think that Kerensky gets... Uh, gets uh, somebody said that it would be very similar to the Mexican Revolution, where Maduro gets uh, overthrown and executed by Huerta. I think you're going to situ- see something like that. And that would be a deep blow to the World Socialist Movement. Uh, and there would be great disarray and uh, panic after that. Uh, and it would, but it would, it would change the the uh, the flow of all our the flow of all. Uh, it would it would absolutely impact everything massively. In the United States, the Soviet the establishment of the Soviet Union helped lead to the Red Scare. Now, without the Bolsheviks winning without the ability to terrify people about the idea of a red army that was running around killing people, at least as far as the newspapers were reporting, and not creating a worker's paradise. Maybe the socialist movement stays coherent and gains popularity, as it had been until that point. Or maybe it dissipates. Now, in this situation, the German Revolution of uh, 1918 
I think still doesn't happen. But, and I think you still see the SDP, uh, uh, SPD rather, I keep fucking it up because stupid German. Uh, the SPD does sick the Freikorps on the workers no matter what, but maybe you don't see the massive uh, f- formalized and reinforced division between the Communist Party of Germany and the Social Democrats that makes it in- them incapable of coming together uh, in the Reichstag to resist the Nazis. And that means you still have a World War II. You still have the a, a apocalyptic confrontation over capitalism in Europe in crisis. But what do the lines of it look like? Is it just another bourgeois versus bourgeois uh, battle of resources like World War I had been? Or do intervening years of uh, striking and uh, worker activism lead to an actual class war. At least in Europe. Maybe with the U.S. under Roosevelt. Although, although who knows what happens in the U.S. if that doesn't, isn't the occur. Maybe U.S. under uh, Debs. Or not Debs by that point, but, you know, Upton Sinclair maybe. Helping contribute. I don't know. No way to say, and that is why I would really like to read it. And I know I basically just described Kaiserreich, or no, Heart of Iron, right? Or Kaiserreich. So I guess that's how you find out what that would look like, is if you play Kaiserreich. I know people. I know in in, the, in those stories, like syndicalism becomes the main uh, uh, organizing uh, mechanism. I don't know if that would have happened. I can see the argument, but I think maybe you just have a strengthening of the uh, of like the reformist democratic tradition, which of course is insufficient. But like I said, maybe builds up structures and allies with labor in a way that allows them to be a competent and meaningful uh, locus of force in a coming confrontation. Yeah, but of course you can't forget that, you know, the Soviets winning, it did create a new era in world history and all of the uh, accommodations with humanity that capitalism made in the 20th century were in a condition of being under the threat of Soviet competition. But if you delay the confrontation and you geographically redirect the center of power of the, of the struggle, maybe you kick off the chain reaction that pushes us towards a socialization of means of production rather than the, uh, I won't even say privatization, because I said no human actually owns it, the, uh, al- the full alienation of the means of production, which is what we currently are moving towards.
Somebody's asking about Napoleon. I think uh, the reason I root for Napoleon and why his defeat was a disaster for humanity, in my opinion, is because I do really believe that capitalism is, modern capitalism is not something that just emerged amorphously a- across the world uh, social order. It is something that emerged concretely and, and materially in England. And then it took over the world from there. Uh, starting with enclosure and ending with the uh, Glorious Revolution. You see the transformation of uh, the English economy and its political culture and, and religious culture. that makes a new form of state. And that cap- European capitalists, capitalism is essentially, is essentially uh, imposed from without on the rest of Europe and then on the rest of the world through colonialism. Uh, that's why I think that there really isn't a conflict between Brenner and Wallenstein, because I feel like Brenner describes how capitalism is born, and then Wallenstein describes how it was exported and came to take over the, the world. Um, so what that means for me is that, well, while capitalism does emerge uh, in France, it is not, it is this alien intervention uh, and by the time of even the French Revolution, it is not fully like uh, materialized and, 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 and developed yet. And the revolution, in the French Revolution, because of, it happens so much later, it happens in a moment of secular enlightenment, uh, it's able to define like the interests of the people in a more uh, secularized fashion than what happened in England, where their revolution was headquartered, was headed up by a bunch of Puritan religious fanatics. And that has an impact on the development of uh, the social order from that point forward. And it, it, it mystifies the social relationship that emerges. There is a clarity to the social relationship as understood under the, the by by that first articulation, modern articulation of 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 uh, the bourgeois, not because the bourgeois is not the same thing as capitalists, because bourgeois existed before bourgeois people existed before capitalism emerged. It just meant people who lived in the cities and lived off of trade uh, and commerce rather than through direct uh, agricultural work. And that category becomes sort of the the class that powers the development of capitalism, uh, but it was one beforehand. Just as the working class is something that always existed, but it increases size and increases internal consistency and political uh, political mobilization and and organization over time. But yeah, of course, the, the, the thing is, like, a, nationally, a nationalized sense of, uh, of, a nationalized sense of duty and well-being or whatever uh, fused to an advanced economy is fascism, basically. But you need, uh, fascism happens because of the continued dominance of capitalism, which you, in this instance, would assume would be interrupted and arrested in some way.
Because Napoleon, the first one, really did want to impose a universal, not particular, meritocracy. Uh, and yes, people say, oh, he seated the, crown, the, 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 the crowns of Europe with his family. Yeah, because he had deserved it. And he, he trusted them. Uh, he was essentially refreshing the aristocratic uh, uh, ranks, getting rid of the deadwood making it more efficient, which is because of the pressure of capitalism. But it still maintained the idea of human power over economic power. Now what the fucking, what capitalism did is it took the idea of, uh, of, er, of meritocracy and turned it eventually into aristocracy but did a few extra steps. So now we think we live, or many of us do, in some sort of system where people are in positions of power and wealth due to their merit, when in fact they are as, to the manner born, as uh, incompetent and generally uh, useless, unchallenged, vapid, uh, and fundamentally incompetent as the uh, decrepit ruling houses of Europe in the 17th, 18th and 19th century. But yeah, no, interesting to imagine. But yeah, no, if you give me one to look at, it would be uh, like the sealed train from Switzerland derails or something. Yeah, exactly. Napoleon can't be a fascist any more than Julius Caesar. He turned it into a reactionary, he turned it into an empire because there couldn't be a republic, because it wasn't ready. You got to put it back in the oven. All right, that's, that's, that's fine. That's good. All right. Talk to y'all soon. Peace.